Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the second of a three-part series that's really about fear. How people are afraid of science and of scientists and see them as something distant from their everyday lives. The famous psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said, fears are educated into us and can, if we wish, be educated out. And the basis for a lot of the most common misunderstandings about science and math are the way they're often taught in schools. Here's Dr. Robert Tai, Assistant Professor of Science Education at the University of Virginia. I think it, that a lot of people draw on the experiences they had in formal education um, settings where they, they maybe struggled a little bit with science and science was something that was difficult for them to do or succeed in. And then they carry that with them and, and really detach themselves from learning science. And here's Dr. Whitney Johnson, who's done a lot of work in the deeply troubled inner city school district in Baltimore, Maryland, where she's an assistant professor of mathematics at Morgan State University. The school system is in a lot of trouble, under a lot of stress. And with all of the reform efforts and things, they just, it's destroyed what education should be for these kids. So all they get is remediation, remediation. You don't know how to add, you don't know how to subtract, you can't do fractions. Okay, you don't know how to add fractions, so I'm going to give you a worksheet of 100 fractions to practice. And I'm just going to keep telling you, do these steps, do these steps, over and over and over and over again. And so, kids just don't learn, and then people give up on them, they just don't think they can learn. And this problem of teaching math and science by rote, as a set of facts to be memorized and regurgitated for a test, has been endemic to schools everywhere in wealthy neighborhoods as well as in poor ones. Here's Dr. Megan Groom, Senior Vice President for Education here at the Academy. Kids think that science is a, a, a bound book. It's a large, very, very large bound book. And everything is written in that book. And if you could just memorize everything in the book, you would be a scientist. And when you get a PhD, it's because you have memorized this book. And far too often, even when science is taught in a hands-on way, like through a series of lab experiments, those experiments are prescribed. They've been done a million times in the past, and you know exactly what the result is going to be going in. And this is the opposite of what a real scientist does. When you know the result ahead of time, it's not even really an experiment. At best, it's a demonstration, and that's not the same thing at all. Here's Dr. Stephanie Kettison, a former neuroscience researcher who left the bench to teach science at Bard High School Early College Queens, a private school here in New York City. Right, because what you do in the classroom, you're given um, the entire recipe for a lab that you do that's been already, it's already been dictated by someone else. That is not how science works. That's how it's taught. Um, but what science is is very different. When I was a kid in the 1980s, my dream, and the dream of every other science-interested kid I knew, was to go to NASA's space camp in Huntsville, Alabama. Which was supposed to give you the authentic feeling of being just like an astronaut or a rocket scientist. It was so popular that they made a Hollywood movie out of it. Now, Chris Breton, the director of education here at the Academy, 
went to space camp as a kid, and he found that even there, which was set up to be an immersive experience for the most motivated future scientists in the country, the campers were kept very much at a remove from the actual process of doing science. One thing, you know, reflecting back on it now that uh, I, I laugh about is that the culminating project at space camp in the mid-80s was uh, after going through these simulators, after hearing different speakers, how, you know, doing different uh, games, uh, the culminating activity was uh, your cohort of uh, 10 to 15 students would launch a rocket. Uh, and by launch a rocket, that meant read from these scripts of how rockets get launched, or and then uh, on the screen you see a rocket launch. And looking back on it, obviously, you know, it sounds ridiculous because I think uh, we, we don't need to play science; we need to actually be hands-on and, and test and fail things on our own. Now, it might be tempting to put some of the blame on science teachers for using outdated methods. But in fairness, Dr. Kennison's career path, going from the bench to the classroom, is very unusual. Most science teachers have a background in education, not in science. And so they don't necessarily know how to do real science. Here's Dr. Jeannie Garbarino, Director of Science Outreach at the Rockefeller University here in New York. We see a lot of science teachers who are expected to go into the classroom and talk about the authentic um, pace of science, the authentic pieces that are related to science, yet they have never had a, a second of research experience themselves. Um, and I think that's really unfair. And even if a teacher has the knowledge and motivation, they need the supplies to do hands-on science, which are often hard to come by in cash-strapped school systems. Here's Dr. Charles Nash, who started his career as a science teacher and is now Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs for the University of Alabama system. When I started teaching, all I had basically was a textbook to use to teach science. So most of what I did was talked about science and read about science and explored science through the written word, through books, through encyclopedia. Things have improved since then, but not nearly as much as we would like. Here's Dr. Garbarino again. Teachers are expected to do way too much with way too little support. Um, administrative support, financial support, um, both in the classroom and in their salaries. It's so hard for these teachers to do anything creative or to, to really go out there and, and learn new ways and learn the modern pieces of science that may not yet be in the textbooks because they are so bombarded and so overwhelmed. And even when someone with a real science background finds her way into a properly equipped classroom, scientists are all specialists. And almost all science teachers are generalists. So just because her background is in astronomy doesn't mean she won't find herself teaching anatomy or geology, subjects she might not know anything about other than what she learned in high school. Here's Dr. Groom, whose own background is in marine biology, but found herself teaching 9th and 10th grade chemistry and physics early in her career. 
So when I was teaching ninth and 10th graders who hated chemistry and hated physics and had really struggled with it up to that point, I had a tremendous amount of empathy for them. And I too was struggling with the materials and I had to find really creative ways of teaching these concepts. As challenging as all of this is, we have to get it right. Because elementary and middle school is the time when children find their life's passions. If we're going to inspire new generations of scientists, that's when we have to grab them. Here's Dr. Tai, followed by Dr. Nash. How old are people when they decide that they want to do science? And if you look here in this data, now this data set is a little different. Let me explain this one to you. We actually surveyed two different groups of people. We surveyed PhD scientists in chemistry, physics, and chemical engineering. And we asked them the question up here, when did you decide you were interested in science? How old were you? And 70%, you see these first two groups, this is K through fifth and this is sixth through eighth. So in other words, 70% of scientists, 69% of graduate students. What does this suggest? that most people are deciding that they are interested in a science-related career when they eventually go on to be a chemist or physicist or chemical engineer before high school. And it seems to me the best way to experience all of what science, what STEM education is, is to start youngsters way down there in pre-K and have them grow and develop through that whole continuum of learning that takes them all the way into PhD programs, doctoral programs, professional programs, medicine, and others like that. So I don't think we can be successful at the university level if we start them at the university level. You have to start them sooner than later is the point. That is, start children believing that STEM education, that science, technology, engineering, mathematics, is something that's good for them, that they can do, and to which they can aspire to get into the workforce as a career to do. And the danger here is deep, because children losing their interest in science is about more than not becoming scientists. As we looked at in the last episode, there's a culture of distrust about science and scientists in much of the country, and giving people a solid grounding in the reality of science, rather than the popular misconceptions about it, is crucial for changing that. Here's Dr. Emily Rice, an astronomer with positions at the College of Staten Island, the American Museum of Natural History, and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Not everybody that needs, is trained as a scientist even needs to continue on to become a scientist. And I think it's actually fantastic to have more science-trained people in other fields, in education, in entrepreneurship, in communication. And that's only going to increase science literacy, support for science among the public, and all of these other fantastic things that we've decided that we needed as kind of a culture, really. The truth is that the skills of science, what you learn by actually doing research, are valuable to anyone in any career. It's about learning to look at what's in front of you and draw conclusions based on real evidence rather than preconceptions, prejudices, or propaganda. Here's Dr. Kedison, followed by Dr. Julie Nadell, Genetics and Education Fellow for the American Society of Human Genetics and the National Human Genome Research Institute. 
I want to um, nurture a bunch of, of skeptics. That's my goal. If a student is skeptical and looks at information and where it's coming from, by the time they leave my class, I've done my job. If they can't explain to me all of the different organelles in a cell, I don't care. Um, I want them to be able to problem solve, to think about, um, to be skeptical about things that they read about in the newspaper or hear. Um, that's more important. What we really want people to be learning is how to be critically assessing this information and I think in that way being a responsible citizen, looking at the information that's being given to them by politicians, by interest groups, by scientists and saying, do I believe what they're telling me and what questions can I be asking on my own and what are reliable sources of information that I can go to to make my own conclusions about this. And maybe that's where the answer lies in teaching science for what it is, a method rather than a book of facts. Here's Dr. Nadell followed by Dr. Nash. You know, when we teach science, I think a lot of what the people who are in this room are interested in is teaching science as a way of thinking, as a way of questioning, as a way of critically thinking about the data that you're given and how you can ask more questions about that and how you can learn more. And I think that something that's great is that kids are innately that. They ask questions, they look at the world around them, they ask questions about it to try and learn more and how they should interact with it. And somehow in middle school and high school when we start to teach science more as this is a textbook, you need to learn what mitosis is, you learn, need to learn what meiosis is, you need to learn about all the different cell organelles and things like that, that's when we lose people. And that's really when we need to get be getting people to be resubscribing to science as a personal interest. You can teach a scientific process, you can talk about it, you can talk about the parts of the scientific process. It's another thing to use the scientific process to discover, to learn, to challenge contemporary thought about something. You can use the process to learn. And research institutions around the country are beginning to share their expertise to help create new curricula and provide new and better resources for primary school science teachers. Here's Dr. Garbarino describing some of the work they're doing at Rockefeller University. We want to try to think of ways that we can support the teachers more fully in, in doing that specific thing. And so we brought together a bunch of teachers in collaboration with the Math for America program. And we taught teachers how to solder and how to build their own Geiger counters, which then they brought into the classroom to teach about radioactivity. And then we brought the teachers together with our Geiger counters and asked each one of them to share their own lesson plan. And from there, just started brainstorming together on how we can generate more support, more lesson plans, more creative ways to engage students when it comes to the concepts of nuclear chemistry. I teach a lot of stuff on the microbiome and, and fermentation and like the biochemistry of those types of things. I teach, you know, I teach about the biochemistry of macromolecules through egg sandwiches. Um, and just trying to think of more creative ways to bring concepts that we know that teachers have to teach uh, using items that they can get from a, uh, a supermarket or a hardware store and just make it a little bit more accessible to do real science in a classroom and to scale with their students. And some programs like this are doing an amazing job of getting children and teenagers to do real research in the classroom. Here's Dr. Ido Davidesco, a postdoctoral researcher in neuroscience at NYU, describing one of these programs. 
So, so the high school students that we worked with were involved in this research from the very beginning. So we started the year with a neuroscience crash course where we taught the students about the brain. And then they were involved in designing the experiment and, and they took part in the experiment as participants. And once we were done collecting data that took about a semester in the spring semester, they became the researchers. So they gained an opportunity to design their own EEG experiment, which is an experience that you typically don't get in high school, not even in college. So they collected data, we taught them how to analyze it, and at the end of the year we had a big event for students, parents, teachers, where they presented their data. Um, and what I like about this program is that the students not only learned a lot about the brain, they also learned about science in general. So how you design an experiment, how you collect and analyze data and so on. And we're now developing that to a full neuroscience program for, for high schools. And programs like that provide something really special and important. The opportunity for school children to not only do real science, but to spend time with real scientists. More than anything else, this has the power to change science from something distant and scary and abstract and make it a real option in their lives. Here's Dr. Nash. But it's about bringing people who do science, and I'm emphasizing who do science, into classrooms that have historically taught science. And we're talking about bench scientists, people who are astronauts, uh, astronomers, excuse me, astronomers, people who are astronauts, people who are biomedical, biotechnology scientists who do science every day, helping our young folk in our elementary, middle, and high schools in particular believe that they can be scientists or that they can do science. Here at the Academy, we've spent the last six years developing an after-school program in collaboration with the State University of New York system and others that provide these kind of interactions on a large scale. It's an after-school program that provides underprivileged children with real working scientists as mentors and role models. Here's Dr. Groom, one of the program's creators. It's just so clearly immediately takes this idea of, a, of an abstract, stereotypical scientist, breaks that mold, and turns it into someone who looks like them. Um, and, and that sounds pr pretty good to them. Um, so we see in our, our research, we see, you know, and that's over and over again, we see that just that first interaction starts to shift their understanding. Um, and my, my almost universally favorite moment um, is when the kids talk about, oh, this is my scientist. This one right here. They're mine. Um, and, and so that just shows how putting the scientists in the classroom, they're teaching something, the kids are learning something, um, but their identity shifts and all of a sudden opens up. And they too, perhaps, now are at least technically qualified to be a scientist because this lady is a scientist. Coming up in the last episode of this series, we'll learn about this program in detail and see how it's bringing real science into the grasp of kids who had never before had that opportunity. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Kerry Kasten and administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Megan Groom and Christian Breton. Special thanks to the other experts who appeared in it, 
Dr. Robert Tai of the University of Virginia, Dr. Whitney Johnson of Morgan State University, Dr. Stephanie Kedison of Bard High School Early College Queens, Dr. Jeannie Garbarino of Rockefeller University, Dr. Charles Nash of the University of Alabama, Dr. Emily Rice of the College of Staten Island, Dr. Julie Nadell of the American Society of Human Genetics and the National Human Genome Research Institute, and Dr. Ido Davidesco of New York University. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.